Welcome to PS Voice, the podcast featuring our leading columnists in conversation with the editors that publish them. In our inaugural installment, Indian Member of Parliament Sashi Tharoor discusses the repercussions of Brexit, new leadership at the United Nations, and the role of media in propping up or decimating the presidential campaigns of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I'm Jonathan Stein, Managing Editor, and with me is Dr. Shashi Thoror, something of a Renaissance man, a member of the Indian Parliament, a diplomat, senior, former senior UN official, and the author of numerous best-selling books, both fiction and non-fiction. And joining us also is Diraj Sabharwal, Deputy Editor and Head of the Foreign Policy Department at the Luxembourg newspaper Tageblatt, and Alexandros Koronakis, Editor of New Europe, based in Brussels. This is one of the first of these events bringing together our uh, esteemed writers and the newspapers that publish them. And I'd like to get the ball rolling with a couple of questions of my own before turning it over to Diraj and Alexandros uh, for further questions. Um, Shashi, we're here in London, and the topic on everybody's mind is Brexit. And the Brexiteers in the government uh, have specifically identified India as a fast-growing country with which they are intending to do fast and easy trade deals. What's your reaction uh, to this ambition of post-European uh, Britain? Well, I met a couple of British ministers who came by India after Brexit, after the Brexit referendum result, I mean. The Brexit itself hasn't really happened yet. And uh, I was very intrigued by the contradictory and yet very useful and pointed messaging they were doing. They were conveying two messages at the same time. The first was, hey, India, don't worry about us becoming less international. We're actually now going to be less constrained in doing a deal with you and opening up our markets and, and you coming to us, a sort of a trade agreement between us. That's message number one. But message number two, seemingly oblivious to the contradiction of this, is, hey, Indian companies that have been based in Britain in order to work in Europe, don't worry, nothing's really going to change. We're still going to be connected to Europe. You can continue in London and more companies can come and open up in London in order to target the European market. Now, that's obviously the right message from a British point of view, but I think a lot will depend on how it's actually delivered in practice. Alexandros, do you want to follow up Well, when we talk about on this Brexit theme? Indeed, when we talk about these trade deals, uh, speed is of the essence, and the UK government seems to be convinced that they can get these trade deals to happen very quickly. How long do you think it'll take to set up such a trade deal, even with a, a very friendly country? Technically, I don't know what the legal position is. Can Britain sign an independent trade deal when it's still part of the EU? I think it will have to wait until it's actually got its Brexit finalized, and that means it could use that time to prepare very effectively the ground for a possible deal immediately afterwards. In, indeed, and, and if I may just ask, uh, what you're a politician not just of India but of the world, how do you see the UK coming out of this after leaving the EU? I don't think the British fully appreciated what they were getting into. I think there was a slight, I think they just wanted to convey a signal, but they didn't want their lives to be turned upside down. And uh, there's a lot of what the Americans call buyer's remorse after the vote in this country. Uh, having said that, uh, a lot will depend on the terms of the exit. Speaking of buyer's remorse, the other question that is on everybody's mind here and 
probably everywhere, uh, is the U.S. election, uh, the Trump takeover of the Republican Party. Now, it's looking less and less likely that, uh, that Trump is going to win, but it's, it's still possible. And I'm wondering, do you see any parallels between Trump and Prime Minister uh, Modi in, in, in India? Both seem to be feeding on, on nationalism and populism. What's your take? I, I wouldn't go that far because I think their styles are actually quite different. But there is, if you like, a trend in world politics that does link them. And that also extends to people like Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, Mr. Putin in Russia, uh, uh, the Hungarian leaders, and, and, and a few others. Um, which is to say that um, there seems to be a trend in which in order to grapple with the um, sense of uncertainty and even powerlessness or lack of cultural and political autonomy that has been engendered by recent years, including the phenomena of economic globalization, the lowering of barriers uh, between countries and so on, that because of these trends, a number of people are looking for leaders who will be nationalist, who will affirm the traditional verities, who will hark back to a great and glorious past, for people like them, that is the ones who are motivated by the thinking, um, people who at the same time will resist the encroachments of the outside world. And I think this combination of cultural nativism, a certain muscular uh, uh, reassertion of the greatness of your own country, um, and at the same time a considerable suspicion of foreign influences, whether economic, whether cultural, whether personal, those trends are visible in all these leaders and in the support bases of all these leaders. One could have added, added Ms. Le Pen in France sure. as well. So. Let me, so let me let me just press you a little bit on, on India. Is it set on a path of intolerance? You've written several articles for us at Project Syndicate on prohibition, cow vigilantes, uh, homophobia, censorship. Is Modi uh, you know, releasing forces that he may not be able to control? Is we in a sort of sorcerer's apprentice kind of dynamic? One can't reproach the government. The government hasn't specifically taken any negative steps. But by condoning these tens, tendencies uh, throughout the country, uh, throughout northern India in particular, I believe that they have permitted certain forces to run rampant, uh, which they will in the long term wish they had not. Well, let's bring in uh, uh, Diraj. What would you like to... Uh, sure. Um, speaking about Modi and nationalism, I think it's much more important to talk about foreign policy with Pakistan relations. If you look at something you have said, you were always promoting the idea of India has a state with an army, but Pakistan has an army with a state. Right now, the URI conflict, everything is escalating. Do you feel that India is not trying to wage in on that kind of nationalism to promote much more conflict and not diplomacy? What's your take on that? People in India have felt rather helpless about the fact that for 25 years now, we have seen repeated terrorist attacks from across the border, uh, ranging from a half a dozen victims to the horror of 2611 in Mumbai in 2008, when 166 civilians were killed in two, three days of sustained rampage by terrorists from Pakistan. But now, is this going to escalate? I mean, what is the danger? You've got two nuclear states. What, is, what, what actually but you see, is the Can danger? you accept a situation where one nuclear state repeatedly unleashes uh, a, a weapon like terrorism, feeling secure that there will not be any retaliation for it because they're a nuclear state? I mean, that is, in a sense, a form of nuclear blackmail that no self-respecting state can indefinitely tolerate. 
So I think what India has done is actually a calibrated, measured and proportionate response. And you note in your recent column that it really seems to have taken the Pakistani military off guard. I mean, it, they caught them off guard. Because for so long we haven't done anything like this. And even when there have been uh, <laughs> cross-border incidents, neither side has gone out of its way to publicize it in order to dampen down uh, the situation getting out of control. This government this time decided they would not not only would they not keep it quiet, they would actually make a public announcement uh, with some operational details, not too many. Uh, and, and this has, in fact, actually energized the Indian public into feeling that the right signal has been sent to Pakistan, namely, don't keep doing this because every time you do it, now we're going to do it back to you. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, two can play this very unpleasant game. It's been um, nearly a decade since you left the United Nations, uh, having come close to becoming uh, Secretary General. And while you were at the UN, you overlapped with uh, Antonio Guterres, who's the Secretary General uh, designate. Um, what do you make of him? Is he the right man? Uh, I think right so. Time? I think so. He's a, he's, he's, a, he's a good man. He's a competent man. He was an effective UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which is, of course, a particularly appropriate background sure. to have in today's... Uh, in today's world. Uh, he's also somebody who I think has demonstrated through these five ballots that he has pretty widespread support, um, uh, which is very necessary in a job like this. It's got to be, he, he led every single ballot, which is unusual. And uh, what is striking with that is that that means that he had a significant number of non-permanent members backing him all along. And you had a follow-up question on, on this. On the UN specifically and, yeah. and the race to the Secretary General, uh, we've been following quite closely, uh, especially with the two Bulgarian candidates who yes. in the end faced off. Do you think that cost Bulgaria the possi possibly the seat, uh, gi given that, uh, you know, current Vice President Georgieva was No, I think I think they had their best candidate in the fray in Irina Bokova. Look, the conventional wisdom, which I myself articulated in the column and Project Syndicate as far back as a year ago in September 2015, uh, was that you would have an East European Secretary General because East Europe's turn was widely accepted, including by the West, um, by Western Europe. And on top of that, it would have to be an East European candidate who would not attract a Russian veto because so many of the other East Europeans were seen as too pro-West in recent years, plus that a woman would be desirable. Now you had one candidate who ticked all these three boxes and on, on, had a fourth box of actually having run a UN agency for almost two terms. The problem with Ms. Georgieva was she was one of these East Europeans who's seen as more West European than East. And I think she would have run into trouble with some of the Eastern countries. Um, so um, uh, it, it just so happened that Mr. Guterres, who you can't get more West European than Portugal, but uh, there he is, uh, <laughs> surprised everybody. And now he's the fourth West European Secretary General. I mean, no region of the, of the, um, of the UN has actually had as many. They were already ahead of the rest with three. Uh, Africa has had two and everybody else has had one. So East Europe really seemed to be ready for its turn. But they'll have to wait another 40 years to find out. Diraj, you, you, had a, you had a question as well. Maybe an evergreen about United um, Nations Security Council. If you look at how they deal with Syria, don't you feel that it's right now, because it has been going on for 50, 60, 70 years, about the debate, when will they reform in a way that also countries like India and everybody can have their word? Right now, do you feel that a Security Council reform is tactable or anywhere near possible? It's sadly nowhere near. And I still remember I was at the UN when Mr. Boutros Ghali in 1992 declared 
that Security Council reform had to be done and dusted in time for the 50th anniversary of the organization in 1995. Well, the 60th anniversary has gone by, the 70th anniversary has gone by, and we're no closer. But my worry with this is not just that it hasn't happened and that India, has, as a result, left off the high table. My bigger worry is that the longer this carries on, the more irrelevant the Security Council's composition will appear to others, and therefore, the greater the risk that its decisions will lose in legitimacy because they're not seen as made by a body that is sufficiently representative. Can you imagine, for example, 10, 15, 20 years from now, any South Asian country being sanctioned by the Security Council with India not being consulted? Do you think India will feel honor-bound to follow the Security Council's decision? What happens if a major country ignores a council a resolution, a sanction in particular, which is binding? Uh, the same perhaps for uh, a country in southern Africa, with South Africa not at the table, or, 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 or a country in Latin America with Brazil not at the table, and so on. Alexander, if you have a... Uh, well, I wanted to move to Syria a little bit, because what we've seen is a long conflict that started from civil unrest, the civil war, to now this international conflict, and uh, the, the refugee crisis that has stemmed from it. Europe is in conflict internally about how to deal with that. We have the European institutions which have an approach that they've tried to put forward successfully in theory. In practice, the member states haven't followed through. Uh, what's your vision for a long-term resolution of this conflict? Uh, we're looking to a political solution, but then what? And the, and the refugee crisis, if there's a, if, if Well, I'm, I'm very sad to say that I don't believe there is a solution possible. Even if the war were to miraculously end tomorrow, which as you can see is nowhere near happening, um, the country is no longer the country that it was before the war started. Populations have been displaced colossally, both internally and externally. If you want to send Syrian refugees back home, they may no longer have a home to go to, or that home may exist, but it be in the hands of people who are inimical to those who have left. Uh, you may actually have uh, a humanitarian crisis with no apparent solution uh, for the foreseeable future. Do yeah. you expect that these millions of displaced children, either within Syria or outside Syria, do you think they will ever return to try and rebuild? To be honest, I don't think so. I think what we are going to have to see eventually at war's end would be a few returning who are willing to do so, but otherwise a massive uh, regional and global resettlement effort. I was very encouraged, for example, that for the first time an Arab country outside the immediate vicinity, namely the UAE, announced it would take, I think it was 11,000, they said, they would take 11,000 Syrian refugees. That's a first. Uh, and when it happens, and, the, and the, the pictures in the Arab media of Syrians coming for permanent new homes in an Arab country, that could set a healthy example. Obviously, 11,000 is nothing against the numbers we're talking about, but it's a very important symbolic gesture, and I'd like to see other Arab countries doing that. I think the sooner that some Syrians accept that the only viable future for them is elsewhere, and more important, the sooner the rest of the world accepts that that is the only solution and works, as they did with the Vietnamese in the late 70s, to implement such a solution, uh, I don't see a way out. 
The last uh, topic that we'd like to discuss today with you, Shashi, is the media itself. And, you know, this is somewhere you've had a lot of experience. Uh, Not it, all of it pleasant, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. I, don't th I think that's probably true of just about everybody. But, you know, it does seem to be the case that it's becoming more and more difficult to cover news and politics in a coherent, uh, faithful way uh, when there's events seem to be happening with so much speed, complexity, there are problems of defining terms, terrorism, populism. Um, let me turn it over to, to, to Jiraj. I think Jiraj has a, a very provocative uh, 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 take on this. Well, I think if you look at how we covered the Islamic State, for instance, we saw how much news were giving them the, let's say, plateau for all their ideas, for their ideology, and it rests right now in the mindsets of many people right now. I have just read, an, um, uh, it's a study by the Pew Research Center, where they really show that they are disappearing. My question to you, do you feel that media outlets and even social media promote terrorism in a way it has never been done before? I'm afraid that it's true and at the same time I don't think there's a solution to it. Because your journalists, uh, the heroes in Alexandras, would you not report an incident in which some of your citizens or fellow uh, residents are killed? Uh, you, you know, it, it, would, it would be an abdication of your journalistic duty not to report it because you have a responsibility to your own community that people should be aware this has happened in your midst. It is absolutely true that the terrorists thrive on the oxygen of publicity, that every time the media gives them publicity, that's what they thrive on. They feel that their, their next uh, uh, killing is justified because the last one got them so much attention. So it's, it's totally, totally clear that they want the publicity. But I don't see how in a democracy any professional media outlet can refuse to, to, to report this. We see in the US elections now that this exact same phenomenon is happening with the Trump campaign versus the Clinton campaign. Trump is getting scores more uh, visibility in terms of media and social media compared to Hillary Clinton. Uh, do you think that uh, that sways the conversation in his favor? Because also, if you can tell us what you predict will happen, that would be great. Well, <laughs> uh, like Jonathan, I don't think the outcome is in doubt. I've, I've never believed it was in doubt. I think Hillary will win. But what is striking about, about um, the Trump phenomenon is how much of it was media-dependent. Uh, there was a famous episode that got revealed a, a month or so ago where Colin Powell refused to participate in a television discussion on a leading network on Mr. Trump's candidacy, saying, you people have given him too much publicity already, I will not participate. Of course, the show went ahead without him. So one person saying, no, I'll opt out doesn't help. But the fact is that it has been estimated that Mr. Trump has benefited from something like a quarter of a billion dollars in free publicity. And in many democracies, especially ones as individual-centered as the American system, uh, obviously, media attention put Mr. Trump in front. And then, of course, the more outrageous things he said, the more publicity he got for saying them. And as a result, the more attention he was able to drive in the process. Quite extraordinary. I, I, I think that um, when you look at it, again, the media will turn around and say, we couldn't have done anything different. If a politician contending for president says some of the most incredible things in the world that he has said, how can we not report it? George W. Bush was positioned as somebody that you'd like to have a beer with. Yeah. Right? And th th this was precisely it. Somebody that, do you want to have a beer with your president or do you want somebody Can't, who's... Will the president ever have time to have beer with you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
I, I think we, we, that wraps it up, I think, for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Shashi Thoror, Indian MP and uh, renowned author, and our guest editors, Diraj Sabharwal of Tagablat and uh, Alexandros uh, Koronakis, editor of New Europe uh, in Brussels. Our next uh, PS Forum will be with Lord O'Neill, uh, former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and former UK Treasury Minister, uh, Anatole Koletsky, the chief economist of Gavkal uh, uh, Dragonomics, will be in my seat. Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org.